0: It's good to be with you today. I've looked forward to being at First Baptist Gadsden for some time, and uh, I'm honored that uh, Matt would uh, allow me to preach for him and to fill his pulpit today. You have a marvelous pastor. Every place that Matt goes, he tells people that he is the pastor of the most amazing church in Alabama, and you need to know how he talks about you, and he's always very positive. And it's good to look across and see friends here. Uh, I see a couple who have the most marvelous grandson in the world, Ronnie and Linda Lee. Their grandson's magnificent. He's my grandson, too. Uh, (laughs) Our daughter married their son, and uh, Watson is our grandson, and then uh, David and Katrina Hooks, good to see them, and Ben and Kelly Carr, and Alan Bremerhoff, and Wilhelm... It's good to be with uh, folks that I know and love. Today I want us to look at the introductory verses of the book of 1 Peter. Some folks call 1 Peter the biblical, the biblical, well, the the it's called the biblical manual sometimes for battlefield, and it's for how to... How to prepare your heart and mind for that which is ahead. In fact, it's sort of like boot camp is for, used to be for the military, and now boot camp is a term that's used with the uh, many times companies. They take their new employees for two or three weeks and say, this is boot camp. There are people who, for physical to, to get in shape physically, do get up early every morning and do what they call boot camp. Well, this will, is designed as spiritual boot camp, the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, verses 1 and 2. Follow along in your Bibles as I read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Peace and grace be yours in abundance. Let us pray. Father, may your word be active in each of our hearts may we hear your truth we ask this in the name of your son and our savior jesus the christ amen in 1964 dora and her husband chester franziak had a son he was born in chicago it was a um, just a normal birth That evening, the nurses took him, as they did at that time, took him to the nursery area. The next morning, a person dressed as a nurse came into that hospital nursery and took their son. They were devastated. There were stories. In fact, um, they had taken a picture of the, the, the little boy right after he was born, and that picture appeared throughout the United States in news photos, and I'm told even here in Alabama in the, that uh, his picture was shown. Didn't find him. Eighteen months later, they found a child in Chicago abandoned on a the street. They estimated him about 18 months old, and so they picked him up, took him into the Department of Health Care. And for a while, they were trying to figure out, is anyone going to claim this child? So they wouldn't have to give him the name of John Doe. They gave him the name of Scott McKinley. And after several months, someone in Chicago had heard uh, that uh, and, and saw the picture of him and said, do you suppose that could be the Phronsieac?" Uh, uh, boy that was born and his parents Chester and Dora they uh, they saw the pictures they came and looked at the child and they saw some similarities and they were very encouraged they said this is our son we you know we haven't seen him in 18 months and they were so excited but this was before DNA so they didn't have any way to prove exactly who he was and um, as a result, he, they were able to adopt this ch- foster child that they believed was their child. And they raised him. They gave him the name after they adopted again the name of, of Paul, because that's what they had named their little boy. And they raised him until he was about 40 years of age. And as he as he was growing older, he saw some things in his family that he wondered at times... Do I really belong to this family? And in his forties, he decided to get a DNA test, and they found out he did—he was not the Franziac child. It had been a very difficult time for him and his adopted mother, as she was a little anxious about the uh, getting the uh, getting the DNA done, and. He, Later on, they run some more tests and they find they, they find out who he really was. His name was not Paul Franziak. His name was Jack. He was from a family that uh, the mother and father had deceased and he had been abandoned on the street. And his mother and father really abandoned all of the children his brothers and sisters they really didn't want to see him again and so as a result this guy named Paul who had been Scott and been Jack finding out who he was now in his mid-40s wrote a book called The Foundling and he says the subtitle is of the book is in search of me And he describes the experiences that he had in all of his life being a little unsure and uncertain and never knowing for sure who he was until he was in his mid to late 40s. Knowing your identity can shape and form your life in a very powerful way. Peter, in this first chapter is writing to a group of people that he knows they need to know their identity, who they are in Christ. Peter is writing at a time when the church is being starting to experience persecution. It was in probably written 62, maybe 63 A.D. To Christians who are in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, They've experienced some persecution, but it's just about to increase, and he wants to prepare them so they'll be able to stand firm against the persecution. The persecution they've experienced is rather unique in that part of the world. First, they're persecuted because many people consider Christians to be a Jewish sect. In that part of Asia Minor, they didn't really have their own identity, and so Those who despise Jews, despise Christians. And then there were Jews who persecuted them because they felt that they were betrayers to the Christian, to the Jewish faith, and as a result, they resented them as well. And then there were the people who really didn't have much religious loyalty at all, but they were mostly loyal to Rome. And as a result... Because Christians would not bow their knee and worship Caesar and the Roman Emperor, they, as a result, they were persecuted. So in all three areas of their life, they were being persecuted. And Paul, excuse me, Peter writes this letter to them. And in these opening introductory verses, he says, I want you to know who you are because who you are will determine what you do. And he says, first, I want you to know that you are chosen. Some of your translations use the word elect, and there's a, a, a verse later that speaks of chosen, and some even use the word predestination. But when you're looking at the doctrine of the elect and reading First Peter Try to not think about that word predestination. There are other passages of scripture that deal with that doctrine. But what he is trying to say here is recognize that God wants and desires you. You are the elect. You are the chosen. You are desired by God. What a marvelous experience it is to realize the creator of the heavens and the universe the one who formed and shaped all that is, he desires a relationship with us. We, we're not just accidents in the kingdom of God. God absolutely desires and loves us. When I was a senior in high school, I learned the power of uh, being chosen. It was, uh, and this was in the dark ages, 1964. It was a political election year. There were four of us good friends and uh, that were in the same school in uh, southwest Missouri that found out that uh, the candidates for president and vice president were going to be in our part of Missouri in the same week. On Monday, there was going to be the vice president candidate, uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was running with Lyndon Johnson, and on Friday, Barry Goldwater was going to be in the same community, and it was about 30 miles away, and so... The four of us who like to argue and discuss politics, we decided we're going to skip school and go see both candidates. Well, we went to see Hubert Humphrey, and it was in a square, and he was in an open-top limousine, and he waved at everybody. Didn't really stop, except they stopped for a little bit. I mean, didn't didn't speak, but just waved at people. It was really just a, a, a quick stop, and... They stopped the car right in the middle of the street, and I saw a guy run up with a camera, get on the hood, and get a picture of him. And I thought, if he can do that, I can do that. So I walked up, you know, ran, got on the the, the hood, and took my camera out. And remember, that was less than 10 months after the assassination of President Kennedy. And security guards came from every direction, pulled me off. And one of my friends tried to intervene, and they didn't let him. And they escorted the four of us us quite a ways away. They figured out that we were just harmless kids, and we got a warning, don't even come close. The following Friday, we went to see Barry Goldwater. Now, he wasn't in in an open-top limousine. He was speaking at the fairgrounds. And the fairgrounds, they had plenty of seats there, and... uh, we, we knew what had happened to us on Monday, so we reluctantly took a seat on the very back row. And they were folding chairs out there, and as we were on the back row, a, a gentleman who looked official came to us, and he says, young, young folks, I want you to come with me. And we thought, oh, here we go again. He said, pick up the chairs, come with me. And so we picked up our chairs and he formed a new front row right in front of the stage. We were in front of major donors. And he said and they said, What are you we pay for these seats, you know, we've made a large contribution. He says, Candidate Goldwater wants young people to be seen in the T V viewing of this rally. And so he says, I want these four here. And he looked at us and he says, I don't care what they say to you from the people behind you. Don't move for any reason. These are your seats. You are chosen to be here. And it was amazing. We took some abuse. You know, people saying, move, move, move. But it gave great confidence knowing that we had been chosen by someone representing the candidate. It gave us confidence. Now, knowing that you're chosen of God gives you confidence in the daily world. It gives you confidence to live for the glory of God and the good of humanity. Even though people may have People may react to you and say, we don't really appreciate you because of your faith. They were chosen. He says, you are chosen. Second, he says, you are exiles. Exiles, that's really a person who is who is in a foreign land, usually not completely at their own doing, but sometimes. And as Christians, we are exiles. Exiles realize they will never feel at home. The example of an exile in the Old Testament, marvelous example, is Daniel and the Hebrew children. Remember, when they came, when they were taken to Babylonia, first, they changed their names. The Jewish names were taken away from them. They were given Babylonian names. Then they were expected to eat a different kind of diet. There were things that they really wanted to eat, but they couldn't, and you may remember how they obeyed God rather than the the, uh, 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 the the government officials, and then they were expected to worship the king rather than worship the true and living God, and so during that time, they live as exiles, but it's interesting to note, while they're living as exiles, they did not try to rebel against the people that were in charge they were just called to be faithful they were not called to overthrow the government they were not called to overthrow all of evil they were called to live out who they were and by living out who they were they were giving evidence of a witness of what god was doing through them You and I are exiles in this world. We're never going to feel at home in this world. Because there's different values. There's different different ways of doing things as Christians. And as a result, we know that, that the world's always going to be different from us and if we can understand that we won't be as angry all the time we won't be trying to get even with the rest of the world just realizing they have a different a different set of values you look at you look at the people to whom peter was writing you were permitted to do anything sexually that the government allowed but Peter reminds them, no, they're called to a higher standard. You were not necessarily required to take care of the poor and the needy. You weren't, you know, you could use all of your resources just for you. But Christians were called to live in a different way, to use their resources to help feed the hungry, to help clothe the homeless. And when someone said something to you, you had the right to take revenge and when you look at what Peter is emphasizing, the teachings of Jesus, what are Christians to do? Turn the other cheek. And as a result, living in a world like that, we will never feel quite at home. It's like the, you know, the old gospel song that was popular probably 30, 40 years ago. This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. We are temporary residents here. We are are aliens. But knowing that up front can give us the confidence and knowing that we will never really fit in our world gives us confidence knowing that God has prepared a better world for us. Then Peter also says, you have been sanctified <clears throat> through, the, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, he is saying, you have been set apart for a specific reason. The word sanctified really means to be set apart. It's based on an Old, Old, Old Testament concept. Where, if you wanted to use an object in the temple... You would set it aside. It could not be used for anything else. And it would be used for temple worship. Maybe it was a vase. Maybe it was something else. But it was set aside for one purpose. And when Peter is writing this, he says, And you have been sanctified, set aside by the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has set you aside. Now he's writing to all Christians. He says, He has set us apart. To be obedient to Jesus Christ. To be obedient. We have been chosen. We, have, <clears throat> we are exiles. And we are people who are to be obedient and are obedient to Christ. Now when you, when you think of how the Holy Spirit works, it's, uh, the Holy Spirit is difficult for us to understand. And almost every analogy of it breaks down. Sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, used this used different illustrations to illustrate a specific point, but sometimes you say the Holy Spirit is our coach in life. Well, that's not completely accurate. The coach, if you're playing in a basketball game, the coach can suggest to you the plays, but he cannot control what's happening. And as a result, you can... You can do exactly what he says, and one team member doesn't do it, and then you lose. Or you sometimes the analogy is used that the Holy Spirit is like the player coach. It is like the one who gives instruction and then gets out and works with us. And that's a better illustration, but it's still not perfect. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes in our life. And lives through us. The coach, the player coach, can only give us advice. And as a result, when they give us advice, we can reject, they can ask us to do things we're incapable of doing. But the Holy Spirit equips us, empowers us, and lives through us. And Peter says, and the purpose of the Holy Spirit working in your life is to make you obedient. Sometimes as Christians, we face the future, not meaning the global future, but I mean our own future, absolute afraid of everything. We know what God has called us to do. God's called us to be a witness In our workplace, God has called us to use our family for the glory of God and the good of others. And we're afraid that we're going to get in a position where we're going to be overwhelmed and evil is going to defeat us. And as a result, we're not going to be able to do it. And we're going, and we anticipate this failure. And then it's as if it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Sure enough, we do fail. But do you notice? what Peter's saying here. The Holy Spirit has set you aside and he is now working through you. We do not have to fail as Christians. We do not have to fail and give in to temptation. We do not have to allow all of the temptations of life to overwhelm us. You, if you are a believer and a follower in the Lord Jesus Christ... You can be confident and competent that the Spirit of God is working in you and through you. Now, let's go backwards a minute. This book was written in 62-63 A.D. In 64 is when the persecution really picked up. Because that's when Nero burned the city of Rome. And who did he blame? blamed Christians for it and as a result over the next three four five years the persecution began to increase and you had these Christians who were facing difficulty loss of jobs loss of income sometimes loss of life and you can imagine the lack of confidence that they had and Peter says in these opening verses remember You have been sanctified by the Spirit. Now, he uses another phrase there. It says, and sprinkled by the blood. Sprinkled with his blood. That's probably making reference to something that happened in the book of Exodus. It was Exodus chapter 24, when Moses was confirming the covenant. You may or may not remember this event in the Old Testament, but he took he <clears throat> he took the blood from the sacrifice, and he poured half of it on the altar, and he took the rest and scattered it over the people. It was as if the blood was on the people. But he's... Remember, this is written now after the crucifixion, the resurrection. And he says, and the blood of Jesus is on you... On the confirmation of the covenant in the Old Testament, it was more than just saying, you're my people, do the best you can. It was the identification was God's presence is on you and in you. If we will daily claim the presence of God and recognize when we're facing temptation, when we're facing difficulty, we're not facing it alone. God is present through the power of His Spirit, and He has given us the authority and the power to be faithful as His people. That's such an important truth. But the last part of who we are, it seems like almost a throwaway phrase Peter says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Really, the the thinking behind that is more like grace and peace is yours in abundance. Grace and peace. Grace. God's unmerited favor. We often think of grace being primarily about forgiveness, and that's a portion of it. Grace is greater than all of our sin, and we can confess our sin and know that God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven us all. But grace is more than just forgiveness. It is a way that God views us. God's grace views us as one of his children. About a year, well, a couple of years ago, I was interim pastor at a church, and on a Sunday morning, they had the children's choirs come and stand across the front and sing, and then they had different children do different solos. I think it was a Christmas program. I was sitting up on the platform right there, and and it wasn't that large of a church, but I began to figure out, I can tell who the parents are when that child sings. You could see when a child, you know, they gave the small child the microphone and you could see looking at that, boy, you saw the parents just brighten up, you know, and mother and dad looked at each other and said, isn't that great? And everybody else said, what did he say? You know, And and I watched different positions, you know, and then I, Instead of listening to the music, I was identifying people in the in the congregation who were the grandparents. And you knew by the look on their face that who the children or the grandchildren were. Because they had a relationship with that child. They loved that child. That child they were willing to forgive whatever, you know, one little kid dropped the microphone and dad said that a boy you know and and it was small church why would he do that because he didn't want his child embarrassed he really wanted to encourage that child in every way grace is in abundance in our lives the very presence of God the very the very reality of who God is, is in our life because we are his people. We have been chosen. We have been sanctified. We, even though we live in, as exiles in this world, we know that God is present and powerful with us. And to see yourself as a child of God. It is a marvelous thing to do. A friend of mine in Missouri uh, used to tell the story about um, his adopted son. They adopted a boy when he was about eight or nine and they weren't sure how that, uh, how his transition was going. They were meeting with the counselors, and they were meeting with people at school, trying to make sure. And, uh, and the the adoptive parents, they were pastors in uh, in Missouri. And he said, "My wife and I prayed for that child. Help him to realize that he's loved by us." And all of, and said, "We there was one day that sort of we realized, hey, it got through to him." Said, his wife was looking out the kitchen window. And the child rode his bicycle to school. And that morning he got on the bike and they could hear what he said. Look out world, here comes the preacher's kid. And he said, I realized that he was confident that we loved him and that we knew him. And said later on we had to bring that down a little bit. (laughs) He gets so overconfident. But do you realize what God is doing through us. When you go to work, you may feel resistance and resentment because you're a believer. And what's God saying to you? Look out, world, here comes one of my kids. There are times that you feel so overwhelmed by all of the things that are happening to you. You feel like you're just going to crumble on the inside. And what's God saying? Hey, I've equipped you. I've empowered you. I've chosen you. I'm the one who brought the universe into existence. And I will be there with you. You can live the life of obedience And regardless of what's ahead, when you understand who you are, you're chosen. God wants you. You're an exile. You don't fit this world, but there's a world you do fit. You've been sanctified by the power of the Spirit for the purpose of obedience. And grace and peace are yours in abundance. There's no excuse. The power of God dwells in us and through us. Let us pray.